Today, the price of gold got to within $3 or so of hitting $1,900. We couldn't quite break above that uh, barrier, and we ended up settling out about $15, $16 higher on the day. Uh, price of gold is about $1,886, but that's still a new nine-year high. And in fact, there's only been about three or four days in history where the price of gold has actually been above 1900 and I think we're about to have another such day, probably as early as tomorrow, we'll see. The price of silver, which briefly got above $23 today, ended up down about $0.48, cents, settling about $22.56, but still much higher than it was my last podcast a couple of days ago when I spoke about the breakout in silver. In fact, yesterday, I think the price of silver was up 9% in one day. So that was about a 15%, 16% two-day rally in the price of silver, maybe a little bit more if you include uh, the morning's rally, which silver wasn't able to hold on to. But that is a big move in a very short period of time. Of course, CNBC, I was just watching before I started recording this podcast, they were pointing out the big move in silver to basically warn their viewers not to buy. Right. They're saying, oh, you know, this is like a speculative blow off top. You normally see this kind of action at the end of a move, not at the beginning. Uh, you know, we've seen this before in like tech stocks and stuff like that. So they think this is a bubble that's just popped. And they're telling their viewers, hey, stay away. Be cautious. You don't want to chase silver because, you know, it's over, which is really laughable because, first of all, I mean, they never really told anyone to buy silver although now they're telling them not to buy it. But to think that this is some kind of end of a bull market, that this is a manic blow-off top, is just laughable. I mean, look at a silver chart. It doesn't look anything like a top. In fact, it looks like a breakout from a bottom. In fact, if you go back and listen to some of the podcasts that I've done recently, I have been describing silver as a coiled spring. I've been saying that any day you are going to see an explosive breakout in the price of silver, that that spring is going to uncoil, that there was only so much uh, buying pressure that the sellers were going to be able to constrain. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, that's why I've been pounding the table on buying silver. That's why I've been telling our clients at Shift Gold even to sell some of their gold to buy silver using gold because silver had never been so cheap relative to gold. So you're coming off an extreme low, right? Not, you know, in terms of dollars, but the real price of silver is measured in gold. Gold is real money, right? So in terms of gold, silver was at a record low. I mean, a price that had never been so low in recorded history, right? In all the records of history, because gold and silver have been used as money uh, for as long as we've had records. And as long as we've had records, you've never been able to buy so much silver with an ounce of gold. So you're talking about a record low price, and now we've broken out of that you know, low level, that consolidation. And instead of recognizing it as the beginning of a new bull market, they think it's the end of a bull market that hasn't even begun. I mean, all they're looking at is the move that silver made 
off the ridiculous low that it went down to in March, where silver went down to what, $11, $12. It dropped from about 18 And that's when everything was getting killed. And so silver got killed too. But that low is a ridiculous and Ill- irrelevant benchmark to look at. So throw that out. I mean, the rally really began from about the $18 level, which is where silver was, you know, before this whole COVID thing started, before the Fed went to zero, before the Fed launched QE4. So if you look at all of the monetary stimulus, all of the inflation that has been created since March, the price of silver is still cheap at $22, $23 an ounce. In fact, it should have been higher than that even before the whole COVID thing. So CNBC is staring at the beginning of what is going to be a massive, historic bull market in the price of silver. Now, I don't think silver, again, is going to get up to the same level it did in 1980 in terms of gold. But it's going to shatter that price in terms of dollars because the dollar is getting killed. As a matter of fact, the U.S. dollar index today was down again, and we finally traded below the March low. We didn't close below that low, but we traded below it, and we still closed negative on the day. The dollar index now has a 94 handle attached to it, but this is really the lowest it's traded. If you look at the actual price, it's the lowest since September of 2018. So not quite a two-year low, but it's close to a two-year low in the dollar. So you have the dollar falling, uh, you have the price of gold rising, now the price of silver is rising, and instead of recognizing this as the beginning of something, CNBC already thinks it's the end of something. They think the party is over and it's barely gotten started. You know, it's a shame that they don't apply that kind of skepticism, you know, to the NASDAQ, you know, or that they didn't, uh, you know, to the dot-coms. They like to now say, hey, this reminds us of the dot-coms except during the dot-coms, they were among the biggest cheerleaders of the mania. You know, so they've never met a mania that they didn't like. Uh, and the only time they're saying something's a mania is when it's in an asset they don't like, like gold and silver. So they're scratching their heads. They don't understand what's going on. But, but really more important than the bad coverage of what's happening in gold and silver. And they do mention it. I mean, they can't ignore it, right, when you're making these kind of moves. So they have about the minimal amount of coverage that they can give to it. And it's all about, you know, why this is over or it doesn't make sense. It's not really favorable coverage like, hey, you should go and buy gold and silver or, or buy the mining stocks. I mean, every once in a while, there'll be a lone guy that'll come on and, and they like gold and silver. Um, but again, a lot of these guys that like it now, they, they didn't like it when it was a lot lower. They used to give me shit. Uh, for recommending it. But I'm glad that a few of them have come around, even if they don't want to acknowledge me when they do it, because you can't really say my name on CNBC. I'm, you know, my name is like one of those words, you know, that there's like these seven bad words that you can't say on television. Well, on CNBC, there's an eighth one and it's it's my name, right? So they, they, don't, they don't want to talk about me. But I know they think about me every time they see the price of gold make it a new high, which, you know, I, I, I think, I think, I, think I, I get a little bit of a kick out of knowing that they're thinking about me and they're not mentioning my name. Although they can talk about me a little bit on Fox Business. I was on with Liz Clayman yesterday. It was a very short segment, unfortunately, on Countdown to the Closing Bell. But I did get a call from a Fox Business reporter who wrote a good article on gold today and quoted me. So 
I get a little bit of press, uh, but not much. But the point I'm trying to make on the coverage is not that they're just not covering, you know, the move the way they should, but they don't understand why gold and silver are going up. And they don't understand the implications of gold and silver going up or the implications of the forces that are driving gold and silver to move higher or the dollar to move lower. I mean, that is the thing. We are staring at a major economic crisis, right? We are very close to something far bigger than than 2008, right? And, uh, but everybody is oblivious to what's coming. And, you know, everyone was oblivious in 2008 or before 2008. So it, 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 it's no different. But the reason that they're oblivious now and the reason they were oblivious then is they still don't get it. They still don't understand the problem, right? They still don't get the nature of the bubble. So they don't understand the pin or what it implies or what happens when a bubble that they don't even recognize deflates. And I'm not just talking about a stock market bubble. The bubble is the entirety of the U.S. economy. And and what is happening right now, to me, is a warning sign that this dollar crisis is coming, right? That the dollar is going to start to fall dramatically. Once we really get below some key technical levels and we're inching our way down there, the dollar is going to collapse and gold is going to go through the roof, right? They're going in opposite directions because the dollar is losing value and that is manifesting itself in a rising gold price, right? Um, The gold price had been hitting new highs in other currencies uh, for months. The dollar was the only currency that wasn't making a new record low in terms of gold. And I've been saying on this podcast that eventually the dollar would join the club of fiat currencies making new record lows. And we're about to join that club. We're not that many, what, $30, $40 away uh, from a new record low. But again, you know, when gold is going up, it's really not the price of gold going up. It's the value of fiat currencies going down. And you need more of a particular unit of fiat currency to buy an ounce of gold. But what the people in the financial media don't understand is the gravity of this situation. They don't understand that the entirety of not only our bubble economy, but the Fed's ability to continue to provide monetary stimulus, Congress's ability to continue to provide fiscal stimulus, all of that is predicated on the dollar not dropping, right? They're talking now about extending the unemployment benefits, right? They're about to expire uh, at the end of July. And if you remember on this podcast, again, I said from the first time that Congress made the mistake of going for this uh, extended unemployment benefits where they were giving everybody $600 a week and it was going to last for four months. What did I say? I said, it's not going to last for four months. It's going to last at a minimum through the election. Because I knew that in July, when you're less than four months from a November election, that there was no way that politicians were not going to extend these benefits, especially since they made them so lucrative, which was part of the problem. They made them so lucrative that a lot of people don't want to go back to work because they're making a lot more money on unemployment than when they were working. And these voters, right, nobody wants to take this away from the voters, although the Republicans now right, are kind of pretending 
that they want to do something about this problem. And I think a plan that I heard is they want to limit the extended benefits to 70% of what you used to earn, right? You can't just get $600 a week extra if you used to earn $400 a week. Your extended, your supplemental benefits would be capped at 70% of what you used to earn. But even if you realize that that benefit supplements their normal benefit, chances are if your federal benefit is 70% of what you used to earn and you add that to your regular benefit, you're earning about the same or receiving about the same in unemployment as you would get if you went back to work. So that's still a disincentive for people not to go back to work. It's not as great a disincentive, right? But it's still a disincentive. So they still don't get it. But, you know, the Republicans did understand this. There was, I forget which Republican actually tried to block this bill. And they tried to insert a a rider last minute that would limit the amount of additional unemployment benefits that you can get to no more than 100% of what you were earning, right? Because somebody recognized, oh my God, we're paying people not to work. Clearly, they're not going to work if we pay them not to work. So they tried to do something to mitigate the damage. But that rider, that amendment was voted down. So they knew that it was going to create a problem and they didn't even want to fix it before it even got started because of the politics. Well, the politics are the same now as they were then. So I think the Republican fix is going to get trashed and they're just going to sign on to some kind of big extension so that we get this uh, beyond the the elections. And in fact, if you look at the unemployment numbers that came out today, the weekly claims that we get every Thursday, for the last, I don't know know how many weeks in a row, but many, many weeks, the unemployment numbers had been going down. They were still over a million claims every, every, every week, but the number was getting smaller and smaller until this week. This week, is the, we broke that string of declining uh, first-time claims, and we got an increase. Last week, it was 1.3 million claims, and they revised that up slightly to 1.307 million. They were looking for 1.308 million, which would have been a slight increase. We ended up getting it going up to 1.416 million, so a much bigger increase. But the important thing is, again, we broke the trend of declining uh, claims, and now claims are rising again. And I think this could be the beginning of a new upward trend, as a lot of the businesses that reopened are now reclosing. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And so even that, right, if we now have more unemployed people, that's more political pressure to extend these benefits. But the point I'm making here is what makes all this possible is the dollar, right? Donald Trump is giving up his uh, push for a payroll tax cut, right? He's all upset that we couldn't cut the payroll taxes. But Donald Trump didn't you know, even think about, well, where would we get the money to pay the Social Security benefits if we cut the payroll tax? Well, we'll just get it from the Fed, right? Whatever we need, we get from the Fed. Well, the only way the Fed can do that, the only way the Fed can make sure that government checks don't bounce, the only way the Fed can continue to suppress interest rates is if the dollars that they're printing and that they're using to buy bonds and to fund government spending, right? if the dollar still has value, if foreigners are willing to accept the U.S. dollar and hold on to it as we keep printing them. Well, the fact that gold is soaring and the dollar is falling should be indicative that we have a problem here. Because as our foreign creditors wake up to the reality that the dollar is going to keep declining, are they going to want to hold on to their dollar-denominated debt instruments? America has sold a lot of bonds to foreign savers, foreign investors, not just the U.S. government, but corporate America. A lot of corporate debt is held by Europeans, is held by Asians, and the coupons are not that high. They're pretty low. Well, if the dollar is losing 5, 10, 15, 20% of its value, if that's what you're ex- expecting over the next year or two, why would you want to hold on to a U.S. dollar bond bearing a 3, 4, 5% coupon or a U.S. treasury with a coupon even smaller than that, right? Not even 2%. You wouldn't. So everyone around the world is going to start selling U.S. dollar denominated bonds. Well, who's going to buy them? Americans don't have the money to buy them. The Federal Reserve is going to have to buy them. They're going to have to print even more money to buy all the bonds that nobody wants, which means the dollar is going to be even lower. They're going to have to create even more money than they're creating now. They're going to have to do an even bigger QE program to monetize all of that international selling because if they didn't do that, then interest rates would surge. So they have to go and try to manipulate it. But that becomes a spiral. And as the dollar starts to plunge, then not only is there upward pressure on interest rates, but upward pressure on consumer prices. And then the Fed is, you know, between a rock and a hard place of its own creation, right? Then the Fed has to choose. What do we do? We got to pick our poison. How do we want to die? Do we want to die by hyperinflation or do we want to deflate this asset bubble, right? Do we want to prick it? Do we want to, you know, save the dollar 
and just start dumping all the bonds we've been buying and force the U.S. government to slash spending? Tell Congress, hey, guys, not only can you not finance a new round of stimulus, you got to take back the stimulus you've already provided. You got to start cutting government spending. You got to start increasing taxes. This is the dilemma that the Fed is about to face, that the entire country is about to face. This, This crisis, which is so much worse than a mere financial crisis, when you're talking about a dollar crisis and then a sovereign debt crisis, and nobody is even discussing this possibility, even like it's a long shot. Even if you want to say, look, this is a worst case scenario that might happen, but we don't think it will, they're not even doing that. They're not even discussing the possibility that we could have a problem here. So they're watching the price of gold go up. They're watching the dollar go down. And as far as they're concerned, there's nothing to worry about, right? It's like you got all these coal miners again, and you know, the canary drops dead, and, and they couldn't care less. They don't, they're, you know, they're not concerned. Now, you know, maybe the investors don't realize that they're in a coal mine or a bubble, whatever it is, but they're not recognizing the warning sign of gold going up and the dollar going down. This is telling you something. Investors, people around the world are buying gold for a reason. It's not because they're confident in the U.S. dollar, in the U.S. economy. It's because they're losing confidence in both. That's why they're buying um, gold. That's why they're buying silver. That's what's going on. But this loss of confidence is going to spike as the price of gold moves even higher. And again, as I said on my last podcast, it's hard to tell, you know, which is the horse and which is the buggy. Is it the dollar going down that's making gold go up? Or is it gold going up that's making the dollar go down? And of course, gold going up means the dollar is going down. But the question is, which is leading and which is following? I'm not even sure it matters, but clearly... The warning signs are there for anybody who knows uh, to look for them. And I think, again, that is the problem, is that the mainstream doesn't even realize this. People don't realize how vulnerable the U.S. economy is. They don't realize to the extent to which we depend on the overvalued dollar. We depend on foreign creditors to continue to accept dollars and hold them in low interest-bearing debt instruments and continue to supply us with low-cost goods uh, that they produce. That's all going to end. And it reminds me a lot of the situation leading up to 2008. You know, when the subprime crisis first started, and it really started in 2017, and you had a couple of key subprime lenders went bankrupt. And it really was a warning sign that there was a problem now finally emerging in subprime. And I remember when this happened, I was like, this is it, you know, because I had been waiting for subprime to crack because I knew that that was the foundation of the housing bubble and that with subprime rent, it would take the entire housing market with it because the subprime buyers, these were the marginal buyers. It was the subprime guy that was buying his first house that was letting the guy that owned that house, sell it to the subprime buyer and trade up to a bigger house. And I knew you had this whole pyramid where the foundation was was subprime. And I also knew that once the subprime popped, that it would have ramifications throughout 
uh, real estate credit. I mean, you go back and, you know, and listen to my mortgage banker speech for the benefit of some of the new listeners now who maybe just started listening to my podcast. They heard me on Joe Rogan. Go back and look at Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers and and look at the speech that I gave to about 3,000 mortgage bankers in Las Vegas in 2006, warning about the subprime uh, crisis, the real estate bubble, and what was going to happen, the financial crisis. In fact, the reason I went to that conference, and I had been there the year before, and they invited me back. They haven't invited me back since. Uh, but the reason I was there was because I was looking for investors in the hedge fund that we had helped set up to short the subprime market. And I thought that uh, I could find investors uh, because these people were you know, successful mortgage brokers. They were making a lot of money. And I thought they might want to hedge their bets by you know, betting a little bit on the no-pass loan. Right. By getting into a hedge fund that would profit from a collapse in the subprime, which I knew would also take down their entire industry. In fact, I was joking. There were so many people at the conference. I said, you know, in a few years, you'll probably be able to have this whole conference in just one one hotel room. Uh, I think we were at the Mirage. But I was waiting for this crisis for years. Right. I wrote a book, my first book, uh, Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. That book came out in February of 2007, but I started writing it in late 2005. And in fact, before I started that book, I was going to write a book on the housing bubble. And it was going to be like, you know, it's a take on the American dream, like the American nightmare. And I was going to talk about what was going to happen when the housing bubble popped. But I ended up writing a broader book on the economy overall. And housing was, you know, a, a big chapter in that book. But I thought it would be better to write a more a more comprehensive book than just limiting the book to the housing bubble. But because I understood the nature of this bubble and not only how the Fed had artificially inflated it, but I understood how housing wealth was such an important factor in the overall U.S. economy. Because I knew that a lot of the spending in the economy was a function of home equity extractions. And I knew that because homeowners felt wealthy and expected their houses to continue to appreciate, they had a diminished need to save. And so savings were down and people were spending more money because they thought they were richer than they really were. And so this was distorting the entire economy. It was goosing GDP. It was also providing a lift to the stock market. And, and that was also part of it. So, you know, I saw all of this and, and I knew that eventually the bubble would pop. And I appreciated how much damage right, would, would result from that, not just in housing, but in the banking system. But if you didn't understand that it was a bubble and you thought everything was fine, then you just ignored what happened uh, with the subprime lenders. And in fact, even when the whole subprime market fell apart, nobody in the mainstream was worried. If you remember, Ben Bernanke famously said, that there's nothing to worry about because the problems in subprime were contained, contained to subprime. And that's what everybody believed. In fact, I remember this uh, show I did on Cudlow and Company. Uh, Don Luskin was one of the guests and I was on there. And again, I used to be on Cudlow's show a lot. I used to be on the financial television pretty much every week up until the 08 financial crisis. If I wasn't on CNBC, I was on Bloomberg. I was on Fox News. I was on CNN. I was doing all the shows regularly. 
right? They booked me all the time. And, you know, they booked me and then they made fun of me because I was saying all kinds of things that nobody else thought could happen. It wasn't until all my predictions came true that they stopped having me on, right? Maybe they didn't want to give me any more credibility at that point. But I was on with Luskin um, and he was giving me shit because the subprime, um, he said, all the skeletons have come out of the closet and nothing is happening. The economy is in great shape. The market is in great shape. We don't have to worry about anything. Remember, this is before the 08 crisis. This is in 2007. And he's saying, Peter, when are you going to stop coming on TV and telling people that a crisis is coming? Here, this is proof, right? So you've been warning about subprime and nobody cares because you know the, the, the bubble has popped in subprime and housing is in great shape. The economy is in great shape. So you were wrong. Right. And then, of course, everything fell apart months later. But the problem with guys like Luskin or and everybody else, I don't need to single out Luskin. He was you know, part of a big crowd is that they didn't understand the bubble. They didn't understand the Fed's role in creating it. They didn't understand how it was propping up the economy. They thought the economy was real, that the growth was real. They, they, they trusted the Fed. They thought these guys knew what they were doing. So since they didn't know they were in a bubble, they didn't see the pin. And so it's the same mentality now. Wall Street, the mainstream, learned absolutely nothing from the experience they had in, in 2008. And so they're repeating it all over again. In fact, I was looking at a speech that I gave earlier in the year, in January, in Vancouver, in, at the resource conference. And you can see this talk up on my YouTube channel. By the way, I now have more than 350,000 subscribers to my YouTube channel, so that's a new milestone. But if you see that talk, I am, I am saying what's going to happen in the next recession, right? If deficits are this big now when times are supposedly good, what's going to happen when we're running three to $4 trillion a year deficits? What's going to happen when the Fed has to monetize that? Well, here we are. It's happening. I didn't know that it would be COVID that would be the catalyst, but I knew it was coming. I knew the next recession would be horrific regardless of what started it. I knew the deficits were going to skyrocket given how big they already were when the economy was supposedly good. I can imagine how much worse they were going to be when the economy turned down. So I've been waiting just like the... Um, the housing bubble, just like subprime. I had been waiting for years, warning for years about a problem in the making that hardly anybody understood. And so when I saw the first indication that after all these years of warning that I was right, right, because now the stuff that I was warning about started to happen, I saw that domino fall and I knew about all the dominoes that were about to topple because I knew how they were connected. That's how I feel now. That's what I've been saying. That's what I'm seeing. The guys that are recovering the price of gold going up, that are seeing the dollar going down, that are seeing the budget deficit skyrocket, that are seeing all the money printing, to them, there's no problem. They, they, they don't get it because they thought the economy was good. They think uh, everything is fine. They think the U.S. is in good shape. This is all noise as far as they're concerned. It's a sideshow, right? The main event is, hey, what's happening with with uh, Netflix or Tesla or, you know, let's look at the Dow or the NASDAQ. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, the market had a pretty weak day today. The Dow was down a little over 350 points, about 1.3%. More damage in the NASDAQ, down 244. 
down about two and a quarter percent. In fact, it's down after hours now. Uh, Intel came out and they missed and the stock is down about eight percent or so. But the market was, you know, we're near record highs. So the mainstream doesn't get it just like they didn't get it. And even I was doing debates with people even in early to mid 2008, right? Saying that the economy was a mess, that we're going into recession or already in recession. And people were arguing with me. They were saying, no recession anywhere in sight. You're wrong. There's not going to be a recession. We were already in one. Because remember, the government came out in late 08 or early 09 and then declared retroactively that the recession began in December of 2007. Yet you had prominent economists, including Federal Reserve economists, in mid-2008 saying that there was no recession anywhere in sight when we were already in recession. They couldn't even see the recession that we were already in. How do you expect these guys to, to see a recession in the future if they don't even know we're in one as we're experiencing it? So that is the situation we have today. That's why they're dismissing the silver rally. Uh, that's why they're looking at the price of gold about to make a new high. And to them, it's no big deal. They don't understand the warning because they don't know that there's anything that they need to be warned about. You can't read the writing on the wall if you don't even know to look for it, right? So just like 2008, they're missing the point because gold going up and the dollar going down is a signal that we are getting very, very close to the breaking point, very close to the Fed having to make that very, very bad decision, a decision that it's never made. It's been able to avoid because it's been able to kick the can down the road every time it's been in that position. And the reason it's been working, the reason we've had all this road is because foreigners held on to dollars. They enabled the bigger deficits, the trade deficits, the budget deficits. But I think we're reaching the end of the line. I think we're reaching the end of the limit of the world to do this, especially since the world is also dealing with its own COVID problem, right? So they can't deal with their problem and then underwrite our effort to deal with an even bigger problem. I mean, what we're doing is more reckless than any other country. And that's because we think that we can get away with it. We still think that we can have whatever we want as long as the Fed creates the money, that there is no consequence. There is no downside. Yes, we can all shelter at home. Nobody has to work. And the Fed can just give everybody money and we'll, we'll all go about our lives. We don't actually have to work and be productive. You know, there's no limit. Whatever money uh, the states need, whatever money people need, whatever money small businesses need, the Federal Reserve will just supply it and everything is going to be fine. Right. Well, we're about to find out the hard way that that's not the way life works. Right. There is no free lunch right now. People think it's not just a free lunch. They think we can have a free lunch, breakfast, dinner, not only every day, probably every day of the year. And it's not this gigantic free buffet. Foreigners are about to present us with a bill that we can't afford to pay. So, again, to me. What I'm seeing now is very reminiscent of what I saw back then. You know, and I started screaming uh, my warnings much louder. If you go back and you look at like the Peter Schiff was right video, again, if you're new to my podcast, you don't know about that. That was a viral video. Got about 2 million views initially before the guy that created it took it down. But it got 2 million views in 2009. 
which was a lot of views for a YouTube video back then. In fact, as of that point, it was probably one of the top YouTube videos ever. I mean, of course, now I mean you have a lot of view videos that get more than 2 million views. But in 2009, YouTube was pretty young, and there weren't that many videos that were getting 2 million views, right? Unless it was just a pop star or something. But this was, this was a very, very uh, you know, widely seen video. But if you look at that, most of my appearances from that, you know, were 2006, you know, seven, eight, you know, after it was obvious that the subprime had popped, my, I started screaming much louder, warning, you know, it much more decisively about the collapse that was coming, about the financial crisis that lie ahead, about how the banks were going to fail, how Fannie and Freddie was going to go bankrupt. Because by then, I had seen enough of my predictions come true. Well, anybody who has been following me since then, anybody who's been listening to my podcast, it should now be obvious right, that what I've been forecasting is going to happen because so much of what I said would happen has already happened. All of the things that I said would ultimately lead to a currency crisis, a dollar crisis, all those things have happened. And now we're starting to see it all play out in real time. We're seeing the price of gold about to hit a record. We're seeing the dollar going down. Remember how many people earlier in the year were predicting this huge spike in the dollar. That's what all the experts were saying. They were worried that the dollar was going to get too strong. And I was saying, talk about a non-problem. The last thing we're going to have to worry about is the dollar being too strong. I mean, that would be a blessing. But no, we're going to get cursed with a much weaker dollar. So all the experts were completely wrong on where they thought the dollar was going to go. But this dollar decline is happening in the face of everybody believing that the dollar is going to go up because of all of the problems associated with the pandemic. Well, if the dollar can't rise when it normally would be expected to on safe haven buying, because remember, gold is rising as a safe haven asset. Why isn't the dollar rising? Because it's not a safe haven. The dollar is the epicenter of the risk. You buy gold as a safe haven from the dollar. And that's what people aren't recognizing. And they're buying silver too as a monetary metal, as a safe haven from the dollar. It's not risk on, it's risk off. These guys just don't understand what risk people are taking off. They're taking off inflation risk. They're taking off purchasing power risk and they're buying gold and silver. So the mainstream doesn't get it. They don't understand what's happening. And so to them, it's business as usual. This is exactly the way it was leading up to the financial crisis. And then, of course, when the crisis blindsided everybody, what did they say? Well, nobody could have possibly seen this coming. This was a 100-year flood. I mean, this caught everybody by surprise. Nobody got this right. Uh, and, you know, and then, of course, they charged the government uh, with trying to fix the problem that they didn't even understand that government created. The Federal Reserve ended up with a lot more power after 2008, even though the Federal Reserve is the reason we had 2008. Instead of dismantling the institution, we empowered it to do even more damage, which is precisely what they did. And now here we are, you know, over a decade later, and we're on the eve of a far greater crisis, much worse than 08, by an order of magnitude worse. And complete complacency. Nobody worried, nobody concerned, Everybody talking about 
how great uh, the economy is or how great this recovery is and the bull market and everybody wanting the government to do more and provide more stimulus and nobody worried about the negative consequences of that stimulus, how, how close we are to the edge and falling off this edge. And even though they're getting all these warning signs in the gold market and now the silver market and soon the dollar market, they're ignoring it. Well, the key is how much longer, right? I mean, at some point, the dollar's decline is going to become a collapse. At some point, gold rally is going to kick into a much higher gear and you're going to start to see some pressure. And they'll be scratching their heads, but eventually people are going to have to recognize that this is a problem, especially if we start to see the stock market falling, right? And this is ultimately going to probably be a wake-up call, and we'll see. Maybe some people will still sleep. But the next decline in the stock market, the next big decline, I don't think it's going to look anything like the decline we had in March or the decline we had you know, in 2008. I think the stock market's going to go down and the gold market's going to go up and gold stocks are going to go up. In fact, people still don't get this, right? Because gold stocks were down today. In fact, if you look at the GDXJ, it was down over 3%. That's a bigger drop than the NASDAQ, even though gold finished up $15. Why would you sell off gold stocks? Gold's up $15 because traders are still treating gold stocks just like they're another stock. And they saw the market going down, and so they sold gold stocks. But the fundamentals for gold stocks are completely different. It's night and day. And in fact, gold stocks are still cheap. It's the NASDAQ that's overpriced. What does that have to do with these gold stocks? The fundamentals for the gold stocks are getting better and better as the price of gold is going up. In fact, the price of gold has already gone up so much that even if it goes down, gold stocks should be going up. Because gold stocks don't even reflect the current price of gold. So it doesn't matter if the price of gold goes down a little. Gold stocks are still too cheap. But people don't get this. They're still worried. But when we see a complete decoupling of not only gold, but gold stocks from the overall market, and in particular, the bond market. Now, the bond market, of course, is a hard nut to crack because that's where the government, the Federal Reserve, is doing the most manipulation, right? The Federal Reserve keeps printing dollars to buy bonds. That's the problem. And so it's the dollar that's going to crash, not the bond market, right? You can't be looking for the bond market vigilantes because the Fed killed them. You got to look for the dollar vigilantes. Those are the ones that are going to end this party. But when you see stocks going down and gold going up, gold stocks going up, and the dollar going down and that dollar crash spilling over into U.S. financial assets and causing the Fed to have to increase the size of its QE program, again, to buy up more corporate bonds or muni bonds or treasuries or whatever the rest of the world is trying to get rid of. Because, you know, uh, during the 2008 financial crisis, one of the reasons that a lot of foreigners lost was because they owned a lot of our mortgages. And, and so when our mortgages went bad, and we're defaulting, a lot of our foreign creditors ended up holding worthless mortgage debt. Well, this is going to be an even bigger problem because they own a lot more treasury debt. But the difference is there's a bid for that thanks to the Fed. They can sell their treasury bonds. And in fact, a lot of the treasury bonds that foreigners own are bills. They're T-bills with very short maturities. And so there, you don't even have to sell. You don't even have to find a buyer. You just let the, the instrument mature and the U.S. government has to give you your money, your dollars. 
Well, where is the U.S. government going to get the dollars? Not from the taxpayers. The taxpayers don't have it. So if you have a bunch of treasuries that are maturing and instead of rolling them over, our creditors say, uh, no, thank you to that. Just let me have the dollars. The Fed has to print those up and it has to buy more bonds and its balance sheet explodes. And what do you think foreigners are going to do with their dollars when their bonds mature and they don't roll them over and they get dollars? They're not going to hold them because if they wanted to hold dollars, they would have rolled over their treasuries. No, the reason they're not rolling over their treasuries is because they don't want the dollars. So then the minute they get the dollars, they dump them. They sell them to get back their local currency. So this is going to be an unprecedented crisis. Go back to 1997 and look at the Asian currency crisis and look at what happened to the economies and to the stock markets in Indonesia in the Philippines, in Malaysia, in in, in Thailand, right? Because these currencies dropped. And when the currencies dropped, there was capital flight out of their countries. And so they went into deep recessions, rates went up, inflation spiked. It was a real disaster. And stocks went down. Even as the currencies went down, stocks went down too, right? Well, that's going to happen in America, only worse. We are in much worse shape, fundamentally and structurally, than any of those Asian economies were going into the 1997 Asian currency crisis. This is going to be maybe the 2020 or 2021 U.S. dollar crisis, a much grander scale than the Asian currency crisis and much more significant for the global economy because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. I mean, the the ringgit, the bot, I mean, those were just peripheral currencies. It didn't matter to somebody if the, if the ringgit was crashing. But if the dollar is crashing, if the U.S. dollar is crashing, this is a big, big deal. And you have these networks that are spending the whole day covering the market, covering all the financial markets, and talk about ignoring the elephant in the living room. I mean, this is a whole herd of elephants in, in, in a room smaller than a living room, and they're still ignoring that. And they're, and they're just focusing on really what is the sideshow. So I am going to continue to put the focus on the main event. I'm going to make sure that the people who are following me and listening to my podcast understand what's going on. And more importantly, I'm going to keep them from going broke. And in fact, not only that, not only can you avoid going broke, but you can actually end up profiting. Uh, you can actually end up making money off of this crisis. And one final thought, again, what you can do to help me spread the word not only uh, tell your friends about my podcast, uh, you know, follow me social media, but you know, start following me on Instagram. I've been talking about my Instagram account. Uh, we're up to thirty-two thousand uh, plus followers now, but still, I mean, I got over two hundred sixty-five now thousand on Twitter, and so I've been doing a lot of tweeting because two hundred sixty-five thousand people are following me. Still haven't been that active on Instagram yet because I still don't have uh, a big enough following. I want to cultivate it and then get more active because I think the platform could end up uh, being helpful in my efforts to reach a younger demographic, not so much because I want them as clients, but because I want to influence them. I want to help them to understand uh, real economics early on. I want to help you know, get through the barriers and you know, basically unbrainwash them, uh, de-indoctrinate them from what they've been learning. Uh, and so I want to reach out to them on this platform. So hopefully we can get to 100,000 followers. Maybe that'll be a nice place to really start uh, upping my game on my Instagram. So if you're listening to the podcasts and you're not following me on Instagram, just go to Peter Schiff. 
and, and, and follow me. And if you're not even on Instagram, just set up an account. It's no big deal. And then follow me. Even if I'm the only person you're following, follow me. But, you know, you might find that you've got some friends on Instagram and stuff like that. Because the key is I want people sharing my content. So when I put up a story on Instagram or whatever I post, I want to make sure that everybody who's following me shares it with everyone that follows them so we can really spread uh, the truth around the world. Because I've got a lot of competition. There's a lot of people spreading lies and there's not that many people telling the truth. So I need more people to help me disseminate that information so that we can actually be heard uh, among a chorus uh, you know, uh, uh, of ignorance. We want to have a little bit of real economic understanding. 